one of the things that I've realized about human, humans, really from looking at myself, is that we all have a self-opinion. When we look in the mirror, both you and I, when we look in the mirror, some kind of a thought pops into our head. And for some of us, it's a healthy thought. For some of us, it's a, an, 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 it's a prideful thought. And for many of us, we look in the mirror and go, oh, I wish I could change this or that about myself. And what's interesting is that when we read the Bible, the Bible has a self-opinion about itself. And for me to find out your self-opinion, to see how you view yourself, I would ask you. And, uh, and for us to ask what the self-opinion of the Bible is about itself, we have to, we have to ask it. So here are some things that we can read from Scripture that, that the Scripture says is true about itself. In, in 2 Timothy 3.16, and you don't have to turn there, but um, feel, feel free to write down these references in your, um, in your bulletins if you want. But in 2 Timothy 3.16, yeah, the Bible tells us that it is, it is God-breathed, that it says it comes from the very being of God himself. It also tells us that it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness. And there's a purpose for this as well. What, what is this purpose? What's, what's the end? To, to make us feel, to make us prepared for work, for every good work. In 2 Peter 1.20, the Bible tells us that Scripture is spoken from God through humans as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what this shows us is that the Bible thinks that it is a pretty special book. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12, the Bible tells us that, that what, the Bible, what the biblical authors are doing is that they're explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, the Bible tells us that when we receive the word of God, which is the Bible, the only way to accept it is not as human words but as it actually is the word of God himself, which is at work at us if we're, first of all, if we believe it, and also if we're reading it. So if you want to experience God's word at work in your life, you have to believe it and you have to be reading it. And I think that there are many, many more people who believe in the word of God than are actually reading it. So it's important that we read it. And, and that, what a wonderful Thing to hear and to know is that as we open God's word, as we read it here at church on Sunday morning or in our own homes, is that it's doing something inside of us. It's at work. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, the Bible tells us that even though this current universe will pass away, that Jesus' words, as recorded in the Bible, will never pass away. Um, we, we learned that the Bible believes that its truths contained in the Bible are never-ending. They are eternal. In Psalm 119, verse 7, the Bible tells us that its words are perfect, refreshing the soul, that its words are trustworthy, making simple people wise, that its words are right, that, that, that they give joy into the heart, that its, that its commands are radiant. Think about that. When you think of the commands of God, do you view them as radiant, as shining, as glorious? Well, that's how the Bible views itself, that God's commands, as recorded in the Bible, are radiant and they give light into our eyes. 
So really what that's saying in Psalm 119 is that the Bible brings life. In John chapter 20 verse 30, the Bible tells us that the words contained in it are written for a purpose. And what is that purpose? That we may believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing that we may have life in his name. So that's the purpose of what's written in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, the Bible tells us that the things that it records are written down to warn us. It's a warning. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, the Bible tells us that it is alive, that it is active, that it's sharper than any sword. And it tells us that because it is alive and it's active, it, it goes into the depths of our hearts, into the deepest part of us, like a surgeon's scalpel, and it can split apart, it says, even soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So it's a tool, it's a precision tool that God uses to get right into us. And then it says in that same passage that it, it judges our thoughts and our heart attitudes. That's how the Bible views itself. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, the Bible tells us that it's completely reliable. Um, and it says in that same passage that we should pay attention to it with the same attention that we would give to someone. If we were in a dark room and someone suddenly flicked on a flashlight, our attention would be drawn there. We should give what's written in the Bible the same level of attention as someone, someone doing that. And then it says that 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 light, um, which is small at first, it will grow and grow and grow like the sunrise until that light rises in our hearts and gets rid of the darkness there. In 1 John chapter 5, 5.13, the Bible tells us that its words were recorded um, so that people who believe in Jesus' name would have a deep and an unshakable assurance that we have eternal life. That's why the Bible was written. In Hebrews 12 verse 5, the Bible tells us that it, it can bring to our memory things that can encourage us. But we can only access that if we're reading it. In Luke 24 44, the Bible tells us that it's all about Christ. And it's Christ who can open our minds so that we can understand scriptures and so that we can realize that actually what's written in the Bible is all about him. Uh, in Proverbs 30 verse 5, the Bible tells us that every word in it is from God and that it is flawless. And, and it tells us not to add any words to it, which means that it's all, all we need, it's sufficient, we don't have to add anything to it. In, in, in James chapter 1 verse 25, the Bible tells us that as we look at the Bible intently, it brings freedom. And that as we remember this, and as we keep on going with it, in it, we will be blessed in what we do. So my, my question for you is, how with how much intention are you looking into the word of God because that is where freedom comes from so what we've what we've ascertained so far is that the bible has an opinion about itself and what it seems is that the bible clearly thinks it is all that and then some in fact, the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, is all about the Bible talking about itself. And I love reading Psalm 119. And so if you're someone who thinks, I can't get into the Bible, it's really boring, you know, I, it just seems so old, I don't understand anything I read, 
my encouragement to you is to start reading Psalm 119 and to pray through and say, Lord, make Psalm 119 real in my life. Make Psalm 119 true in my life. That's 150 verses for you to... Is there 150? No, there's 150 Psalms. Anyway, there's a lot of verses in Psalm 119. And as you pray through it, God will grab hold of you and will transform your heart. Ask God to light a fire for his word in your heart. Now we've all needed a second, a, we've all needed a second opinion at some point or other. For example, if you're pregnant, it's not enough for you to pee on a pregnancy test once. You, you have to get a second one and a third one, maybe a fifth one, maybe a tenth one. Is this true? Can I trust what it says? You need a second opinion. Maybe you're someone who, um, who's had really bad news from your doctor, and so you go to another doctor and you ask them what their conclusion is. Why is that? Because you need a second opinion. Maybe you've heard really good news from your doctor, and you're one of those people that's like, well... You know, I'm going to wait for the other shoe to drop. And so you go to another doctor and say, is this true? You need a second opinion. Why do we provide references for our, for our jobs when we're looking for jobs? Because our potential future employer might need a second opinion. It might not be enough for them to hear from us that we went to university, we, with, we, we, um, we, we had honours. When we graduated, it might not be enough for them to hear that we love working with kids, that we volunteer on the site, and we just happen to have the exact right qualifications that they need. That might not be enough for them. What they might need to hear is a second opinion. And so they call the, the references. And so for some of you, to hear how the Bible talks about itself, and to hear how the Bible tells us how amazing it is, how vitally important it is, how life-changing it is, maybe that's not enough for you. You need a second opinion. You need to hear not only from the Bible to make a decision whether it's trustworthy or not. You need to hear from a source outside of Scripture to make the call whether you should read it or not, whether you should take it seriously or not. Now for me, and I I'm a pastor, so I understand this, but I think that the best way for you to be convinced about the mind-blowing, life-altering awesomeness of the Bible is to read it yourself. Um, you know, I think that that is the best way to know, know the God of the Bible. And so I want you to hear that because everything else that I will say after that, we're going to go outside of the Bible. But it's important that you don't just take the second, third, and fourth opinions uh, but that you actually get into the scripture yourself. And so for the rest of this service, I want to spend, uh, spend a short time getting outside of the Bible with the express purpose so that you can get into the Bible. I want to take us on a journey. And any journey that's worth taking, you need a map. And I know that maps have fallen out of fashion a little bit. I know that I use maps way less now that I have this amazing app on my phone called Waze. And it tells me where to go. But even Waze is a map. Even, even Google Maps on my phone is a map. And so I still use maps, I guess. They're just a handy, non-papered, easy-to-carry-anywhere, idiot-proof version of maps. 
and generally those apps, those app maps on my phone are very helpful. Unless you happen to be Lindsay Diaz, who had her home raised right down to the ground because Google Maps got her house confused with another house that was slated to be absolutely demolished. So she came home, she had no house left. And so maps and map apps are very useful unless you're a resident of Sunrise, Florida, home to 90,000 people that did not exist on Google Maps for a whole month in 2010. So maps are very useful, maps are very handy, unless you're Amber Van Heck, who was driving through the Grand Canyon and was assured by Google Maps that the highway was only 35 miles away, but then it sent her on a non-existent road to a non-existent point on the map where her fuel proceeded to run out. After five days waiting, she hiked 11 miles through the desert and managed to make a 40-second 911 call and was saved, but no thanks to her map app. So sometimes it's, it's good to have a good, honest, old-school map that you have to unfold and look at. And the whole purpose of a map, we have to remember this, that the whole purpose of a map is to represent a 3D reality in a 2D version, right? And the whole point of a map, of course, is to get you from point A over to point B. So for us here today, we're going on a journey and we have a destination, we have a point B, and our goal is this, is for you to be assured uh, in the reliability of the Bible. And so we will be referencing, as I said, these second opinions. I want, you, I, I want to take us outside of the Bible so that I can get you into the Bible. So I don't know where you are on the spectrum of faith. Maybe you're really hostile to God at the moment, or maybe you're on fire with, for, with love for him, or most likely you're probably somewhere in between those two extremes. And so as we walk through this map, as we let this map lead us, I, I trust that it will lead you, regardless of where you are, hostile or in love, to a place of greater confidence in the God of the Bible and the Bible of our God. So the ultimate question for us here today is, how can I know that the Bible is trustworthy? Is the Bible trustworthy? And I want to say as well that very little of what you'll hear today is my original thoughts. I'm merely passing on to you things that I've read, things that I've studied, um, things which I've looked into. And lots of my material comes from a paper by uh, a woman called Sarah Ankenman called The Reliability of the Bible. And I have a paper copy of it here if you want to have a look at it afterwards. Um, and if you want to know any more about my source material, please ask me afterwards. So let's jump straight into the M of our map. Now M stands for manuscripts. Because here's the thing, is that we no longer have the original scriptures. For example, we don't have the letters penned by Paul's hands. Those no longer exist. What They've been lost through, through time. What we have are, are copies of that letter or copies of, of, of copies of that letter. And these copies are called manuscripts. And so these manuscripts are pretty important. Yeah, there's this guy called... Norman Geisler, and he says this, and this is the basis of what we're going to look at now. Um, the, 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 
the New Testament, he says, Norman Geisler says, has more manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, and more accurately copied manuscripts than any other book from the ancient world. So let's have a look at this, that, um, this first claim that there are more manuscripts. Now, what we find out, if you look into it at all, is that there are more than 5,700 Greek partial and complete manuscripts of the New Testament. But there are also more than 19,000 non-Greek, so it's probably Latin and, 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 and other ancient languages, but there are more than 19,000 non-Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, which means that there are more than 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in total, so says Dr. Joseph Holden. So what he's saying is that so when Norman Geisler says that the New Testament has, mo- has more manuscripts than any other ancient book, he's speaking the truth. This isn't, this isn't made up. This, you, know, you can check this out. And why is this important? Because the more manuscripts there are, the more cross-checking and cross-referencing you can do in between the manuscripts. So if there's a word, say, missing in this manuscript, you you can check this manuscript and find out what that missing word is over here. And so all of the gaps are able to be filled in. And so, you know, just just think about that. If you have over 25,000 reference points, that's a huge resource from which you can draw. So that's the more manuscripts claim. But what about the claim that the New Testament has earlier manuscripts than any other book from the ancient world? Well, let's do a bit of comparative analysis. And here we will be looking at, at, at dates, but also numbers. So, so we'll be referencing back to the more manuscripts part. Now, we've heard of Plato. We've heard of Homer. We've, we've heard, of, we've, we've heard of, of Aristotle. Maybe like me, you've never read a word of any of their writings, but you've probably heard of their names. So let's have a look at, at uh, three specific words, works, which is, which is, uh, which is uh, Plato's Dialogues, Homer's, Homer's Iliad, and Aristotle's Assorted Works. And we're also going to be looking at one more work, which is by a guy called Pliny the Younger, and he wrote a book called The History of Rome. And let's compare the manuscripts that they have um, and, then, and then see how that matches up with what we have for the New Testament. And so we will be looking at two things. The first one is, what's the number of manuscripts that are still in existence? And number two is, how early were these manuscripts written? So what, what is the gap that separates when, say, for example, Paul wrote his first letter, he actually wrote it with his own hand, and what's the earliest manuscript that we still have? What's the gap between the two? So, first one, let's look at uh, Plato's Dialogues. We can see here that the earliest surviving copy that we have now was written 1,250 years after the original. And there are only 20 manuscripts still in existence. Second is, is um, Homer's Iliad. So the earliest surviving copy that we still have was written uh, 500 years after the original was written. And we have 643 manuscripts, which is a bit more than Mr. Plato there. 
Number three is Aristotle's assorted works. The earliest surviving copy that we have was written a massive 1,400 years. So think what now is, 2018. Think back what 1,400 years is. That's a long time to, to not have any record. And so if someone wrote something 1,400 years and the earliest um, version of it that we could find was, uh, was written now, that's a long time. And there are only five manuscripts still in existence. And yet I, I expect that if you were to walk into chapters and you were to go over to, to the classic section and you were to find Aristotle's assorted words, I bet that like anyone else, like me, that you would not question the trustworthiness of what you're written. You would not go there going, well, did Aristotle really say this? Even though what we have... Was, is, is, is actually based on something that was written 1,400 years after the original was penned, and there are only five manuscripts still in existence. And the last one which we'll look at is the history of Rome, written by Mr. Pliny the Younger. There was a Pliny the Older, this is Pliny the Younger. And uh, the earliest surviving copy that we have was written 750 years after the original, and there are only seven manuscript copies still in existence. Now, here's where it gets exciting. Is if we were to compare these with the New, New Testament, specifically the Greek manuscripts, the gap that we have from when the original was written to the earliest surviving copy that we still have, the earliest was 30 years. I'm 38. Okay, that's not a long time. And the latest... So, it, so the latest surviving copy that we have um, from when it was written is only 300 years. And there are 5,700 manuscript copies written in Greek that we still have access to, and that's not to mention all those written in Latin and all the, the other languages. What this means for us is that according to the rules that historians use to to really decide if an ancient document is accurate or not. The New Testament is not just ahead of the race, but it's lapped the competition numerous, numerous times. It's finished the race, and it's over having an iced tea and relaxing. That's how far the New, New Testament is. It's not even in the same park. Now, there's this guy called, called Bruce Metzger who's, who said this, that the quantity of New Testament material is almost, is, it, it, is almost embarrassing in comparison with other works of antiquity. Then there's this other guy called Sir, Sir Frederick Kenyon who, who said this, the, the, the interval um, yeah, between the dates of, a, of, of when the things were written and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to become, in fact, Negligible, And then he says this, and the last foundation uh, for any doubt that the scriptures have come down substantially as they were written has been removed. So not only are there more manuscripts, not only are the manuscripts earlier, but the manuscripts are also more accurately copied than any other book in the ancient world. Now, how do we know how accurately the manuscripts were copied? We need to look at the differences between the Manuscripts, and we refer to this as, as textual variants. Now, here's a modern-day example from Nor 
Norman Geisler that helps us understand what these, what, what these variations between the manuscripts might look like. So here you can read um, manuscript one which says, why gap you have won $10 million. Manuscript two might say, why O, and then there's a gap, have won $10 million. So even with the two mistakes, what is that trying to say? Anyone? You have won $10 million. It kind of makes me want to do the Austin Powers thing. Anyway. Uh, so, and here's another example, okay, to help us understand what these textual variants might look like. Number one says, you have won $10 million. Number two says, thou hast won $10 million. And manuscript three says, y'all have won $10 million, written in numbers, not words. But even though the letters are different, even though there are errors or mistakes or gaps, what is the message there? You've won $10 million. Okay, so, so what, uh, what um, New, New Testament professor Dr. Craig Blomberg explains is that he says this, um, is that the texts of the New Testament have been preserved in far greater number and with much more care than any other ancient documents. And he concludes that 97 to 99% of the New Testament can be reconstructed from all these manuscripts beyond any reasonable doubt. Now, let's look at where, 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 where other scholars place the New, New Testament accuracy. So we have um, Norman Geisler, who places it at 95 to 97%. We have Metzger, who finds it 99.5% accurate. We have Westcott and Hort, who put it at 98%. We have D.A. Carson, who puts it at 96 to 97%. And so even with all of the textual variants... Um, or errors, they conclude that there is no major doctrine that is that is maybe changed as a result. So there's nothing that says, you know, you'll never find a manuscript that says Jesus Christ was not the Son of God. You know, that won't happen. Okay? So, so we've looked at the M. Let's look at A for yeah, for archaeology, I understand this is a lot on a Sunday morning, it's a bit lectury, but my hope is that, I, is that I totally overwhelm you, and then you go home and go, let me look a little bit more into that. So my goal is to overwhelm you this morning, okay? So let's look at uh, archaeology. So we're going to look at four numbers, 30, 60, 80, and uh, 25,000. So 30 stands for this fact, 30 references this fact, that over 30 people in the New Testament have been cited by non-Christian historical writers or confirmed through archaeological research, which means that what's written in the Bible has been confirmed by sources outside of the Bible. 60 stands for, for, for this fact, over, over 60 details in the Gospel of John have been historically confirmed. 80 stands for this fact. Over 80 historical details in the book of Acts have been confirmed that have actually caused some modern historians to revise how they view things. So maybe they were sceptical, then they read this, and then they thought, well, maybe we should reassess what's written in the Bible. So 30, 60, and 80, this, this is a huge number of people, locations, and places that have been confirmed from extra-biblical sources, and that's quite impressive. That's a, that's, that's a lot that shows us that when we read what we read in the Bible, it's not a fairy tale, it's, it's not a myth. We've not reached that place yet where we say it's the word of God, but at least we can say that it's historical. 
But those numbers, 30, 60, and 80, are nothing compared to the next number, 25,000, and what that represents. Let's listen to a man, Mr. Donald Wiseman, who wrote this book called Archaeological Confirmation of the New Testament. And he said this, The geography of Bible lands and visible remains of antiquity were gradually recorded until now more than 25,000 sites within this region which can be dated to Old Testament times in their broadest sense have been located which is university speak for saying that 25,000 places and locations that are mentioned in the Bible in the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures have been located in real life that's 25,000 which is Overwhelming! It's unbelievable. It's incredible. So what are some of these places that have been written in the Bible that maybe people thought, well, it's just a myth, it really doesn't exist, but then have later been found to actually be true? The first one is Ur of the Chaldees, which is where our, our friend Abraham hailed from. Now, this site was, was found by Sir Leonard Woolley in 1922, and what that shows us is that Ur, that's written about in the Bible, is not a myth. It actually existed. This, the second example is the capital of the Hittites called Hattusa, which was found, which was discovered, unearthed in 1906. And so what this shows is that the Hittites, which people thought, well, they don't really exist because there was nothing to show that they existed outside of what was written in the Bible, well, now they have the proof they had a civilization that had a capital city. The Hittites existed. And the third one, will if you've gone to church at all, if you've heard of Jonah, then you'll have heard of the city of Nineveh, who was, who was discovered by a French consul, Paul-Emile Botta, in 1842. What this means is that this Assyrian city existed. It was real. It was not just a fairy tale or a moral fable. And let me share with you one more historical find that I think will blow your minds. This is called the Ipua, the Ipua Papyrus. You can write it down. You can Look it up later on. This was found in Egypt just over 100 years ago, and it dates back to the 13th century BC. And, and remember that this is an extra-biblical source. This isn't something that we find in the Bible. This was something that, that, that was written by, by Egyptians. And uh, this is what it talks about in this work. It talks about how a plague is throughout the land. It talks about how the river is blood. It talks about how groaning is heard throughout the land. It talks about fire being mingled with hail. It talks about trees and herbs being destroyed. It talks about how darkness is in the land. It says that he who is placing his brother in the ground is everywhere. It says that the animals weep and the cattle moan. And it said that the, that the cattle are left to stray in the field. Now, if, 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 if you look at those two references side by side, what does that sound exactly like? The ten plagues. So here's, so here's a writing outside of the Bible that they have, no, they have n nothing to gain or to prove from, from writing this down. But they've written something down that looks remarkably similar to what we read in the Bible. So what do we conclude from the A? from archaeology, that the Bible is trustworthy and reliable. Listen to what this guy, Nelson Gluck, says. He says this, it may be stated categor 
categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted the biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. That's amazing. So there's nothing that has been found that categorically proves or that categorically disproves anything that you read in the Bible. In fact, the opposite is true. That's what he's saying. And so we're still journeying on using our map, looking to reach our destination, our goal of um, having a renewed confidence in what we read in the Bible. We've looked at at manuscripts, we've looked at archaeology, and finally we're going to look at prophecy. And for this, we're going to look at prophecies which were made in the Bible that were fulfilled and can be verified. So, so they need to be historically provable. So we're going to look at three examples of, of yeah, prophecies made in the Bible that were astonishingly fulfilled. Number one is the Cyrus prophecy. This was made uh, in the book of Isaiah. And what the Cyrus prophecy is, is this. It says that the prophet Isaiah foretold that a conqueror named Cyrus, so his name was specifically given, a conqueror was Cyrus, would wipe out the mighty Babylon and subdue Egypt along with most of the rest of the known world. The same man, Cyrus, said Isaiah, would choose to let the Jewish exiles go free without any payment of ransom, which was kind of strange and that usually wouldn't happen. And so here's a scripture um, which, which, which actually speaks specifically about this. Isaiah 45, 13 says this, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city. He will set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. That's one of the verses which I've referenced here. So when did this prophecy come true? When, when was it fulfilled? Well, it came true 150 years or, or this prophecy was written 150 years prior to someone called Cyrus even being born. It was written 180 years uh, prior to Cyrus actually doing any of these things. And he actually did end up doing all of them. And it was written 80 years before the Jews were taken away into exile. So that's one. Where the level of the detail and the prophecy and the fulfillment is amazing. Number two, let's look at something which we should have heard a few times over the past few weeks. is the city of Jericho. Okay, this is the prophecy. Okay, Joshua prophesied that this city would be rebuilt by one man. He also said that the man's eldest son, um, he would pass away, he would die when the reconstruction started. That his youngest son would pass away, would die when the work was ended and the scripture which we use for to to find that prophecy is joshua chapter 6 verse 26 where it says this at that at that time joshua pronounced this solemn oath cursed before the lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city jericho at the cost of his firstborn son he will lay its foundations at the cost of his youngest he will set up its gates about five centuries later this found its fulfillment in the life and the family of a guy named Hiel, which you can read in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33. And what that says, what that scripture says is this. In Ahab's time, Hiel... 
rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. That's written down as history. And you would assume that Hiel wasn't one of these people that wanted to see prophecy fulfilled at the expense of his sons. This happened. God knew it would happen and it was fulfilled 500 years later. 500 years later. Half a century later. And the last one which I'd like to look at is the prophecy of the Messiah. Again, this is where it gets really interesting. Let's say that there's someone who's alive now. And as you start watching them, as they walk through their life, as they start living their life, you start to realize, hold on a sec, he's doing what people talked about hundreds of years earlier. And it happens once, and then it happens again, and it happens again, and he's walking from from town to town, and he says this, and he does that, and he heals so-and-so, and and, you you just end up going, hold on a sec, he fulfills all this stuff that people said hundreds of years ago earlier. There's this guy called, called Peter Stoner, uh, who's the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at, 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 at Pasadena College in, in California. And with 600 of his students, he looked at just eight prophecies about Jesus. And then he considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all eight of these prophecies. And his conclusion to this research was staggering. Um, he said this, that the that the prospect that anyone would satisfy, that any one person would satisfy these eight prophecies is one in ten to the power of seventeen. Now, in this in this magazine or in this in this publication called Science Speaks, he describes what what one in ten to the power of seventeen looks like. He says this: if you mark one of So if you have 10 tickets and you mark one of them, you put them in a hat, you mix them around, you take one out, um, then you ask a a blindfolded man to withdraw one of them, the chance of getting the ticket that's marked is 1 in 10. Now, suppose that we take 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars and lay them across the face of Texas. They will cover the state of Texas to... It will be a pile two feet high. Now mark one of those silver dollars, stir the whole mass absolutely thoroughly all over the state, then blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance does he have of finding the right one? It's one in ten to the power of 17. This is the same odds that one person fulfills eight prophecies. So this is incredible that these eight prophecies that were written in in different times and in in different places, in different circumstances, you know, they were written by different people, would come true in one person is absolutely staggering. In fact, I would say that outside of God's sovereignty and his purpose, it's statistically nearly impossible. But the reality is that Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies. Scholars believe that Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies, many of which he would have had no control over. So 
I started here today by sharing about how the Bible views itself, that it has a healthy self-opinion. And my conclusion is that, yeah, the Bible is everything that we need from the Lord in his words. And, you know, and really I would say that our eternal joy rests on what is contained in the Bible. But it's all well and good for the Bible to speak in glowing terms about itself. But what if we doubt the Bible itself? How can we know that it's true and trustworthy? Do we just have to take the Bible's word for it? Now here today what I've done is I've given you a second opinion, a third opinion, and a fourth opinion. Using other people's research and insights, I've tried to take us outside of the Bible to find reasons to trust what it says inside that we can say with absolute confidence that it is the inspired word of God. And we've gone on a journey, this journey has a destination, and the destination is the knowledge and the assurance that what we read in the Bible is true. And we've used this, this, this word map, we've looked at, at manuscripts, we've said there are more and earlier and more accurately copied manuscripts for, for what's written in the New Testament than any other book in the ancient world. And we've looked also at, at archaeology, how there are 25,000 locations and places mentioned in the Bible that have been found in real life. Lastly, we looked at prophecy, that, 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 that how these prophecies are fulfilled through, through, throughout the Bible, but particularly in the life and the person of Jesus Christ, is nothing short of miraculous. God had to be involved. And so we've, or I've concluded, that the manuscript evidence and the archaeological evidence and the prophecy evidence serve as second and third and fourth opinions that the Bible, the Word of God, can be trusted. And this is hardly scratching the surface here on the table in front of me. If you want to read more about it, I have some excellent resources here. Though that it's dry and it's boring and it's really scholarly, but it is exciting stuff. Read it. So my last words are this, is that God's word is true. God's word is truthful. And God's word is worthy of your attention your trust and your obedience. Let me close with a, quote, with a quotation that sums up why you should go home, post-haste, grab hold of a Bible, crack it open, read it, and allow it to transform you forever. Listen well. This is an amazing quote. This book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, and the doom of sinners, and the happiness of the believers. All its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are, are, are immutable. Read it so that you can be right, wise. Hold on to it so that you can be safe. Practice it so that you can be holy. It contains light to lead you, foods to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is, it is the traveler's map. It is the pilgrim's staff. It is the pilot's compass. It is the soldier's sword and is the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored. Heaven is opened and the gates of hell are shown and disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is, is, is its 
purpose and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the heart, it should, sorry, it should fill the memory, it should rule the heart, it, sh- it should guide the feet. Read it slowly, read it frequently, read it prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, it is a paradise of glory, it is a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you up to Calvary, up to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ Jesus. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. 